from a financial standpoint, um, recovery is expensive uh, and it only caters to a certain economic class, I would say. If you know someone that has ever gone through inpatient treatment for substance abuse or had questions about it, you should listen to this episode. A little bit of a backstory. I had a client who was interested in going into an inpatient facility for treatment for substance abuse. And I was very surprised. I, I, I hadn't done it before. I had never encountered this type of experience and I truly thought it was just making a couple of phone calls and she had options and choices but I found that that it was quite difficult and a lot of barriers it seemed to access the care that she wanted and it led me to want to find out more and ask questions and I thought who better than to ask but my friend Randy he works for a major healthcare system in the Massachusetts area and he just so happens to work as a nurse in an inpatient substance abuse treatment facility. So I thought he offered some great insight. He really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And things that I had heard in the past or thought of didn't really resonate until I talked to him. He is a new dad. And we got to talk about that and what he saw for his son's future. I'm curious. What do you guys, if any of you has ever gone through something like this, if you yourself find that maybe some of these similar experiences or was it just me? We definitely don't have the answers, but we sure do talk about a lot of our concerns and take a listen. Please give me your feedback. Let me know if you have any thoughts on this topic. I would love to hear from you. Hi everyone, nice to see you all. <laughs> I'm so excited to do this episode with my best friend Randy. We are currently sitting in his son's Sebastian, who's two months old as of yesterday, in yeah. his um, nursery. <laughs> so thank you, Randy, for accommodating us. This is where my life takes place. <laughs> <laughs> and we are currently in Massachusetts, um, and I'm very excited because Randy and I have been talking about doing an episode together. Um... So I'm going to talk a little bit about why I wanted to do this episode with you, Randy, which okay. we, I know we talked about it before, but just like, you know, a couple months ago, I had this issue with a client of mine and it was very eye opening where, um, I never had someone who was struggling with addiction as far as uh, substance abuse. And I, I actually didn't know initially when I met her, but I did get a phone call from her mother who was very concerned about her 
um, getting back into drinking and mixing her pills and things like that. And she had a whole host of medical problems, which is why I was seeing her. And when that came to light, uh, my patient did tell me at the time that she wanted to go into recovery. So I said, okay, you know, let's, um, let's look into that. Cause I'd never been in a situation where I had to actively help someone to go to rehab. So of course, you know, I said, let me call her insurance. So I did call her insurance and I found that, wow, there was like all this red tape. And with that, I was like, well, are they really promoting recovery? I wasn't really, in my mind, I wasn't really feeling that sense. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, certainly. And so it got me thinking about it, and which is where you come in, because I know that you work at a facility within healthcare that caters to dual diagnosis. And for those people that don't know, Randy, can you tell us a little bit about what dual diagnosis is? So dual diagnosis is um, primarily for those that are dealing with uh, a, a substance abuse issue and secondarily, um, they also have a mental health issue where that could pertain to depression, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, you know, all sorts of any sort of medical, um, excuse me, mental disorders, including visual and audio uh, hallucinations as well. Yeah, um, I would say on a monthly basis, um, we can have anywhere between, I would say, seven to ten uh, patients that come in um, with a substance abuse uh, issue currently or with a history of. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, how, what's the, the way that I want to phrase it? How, like in, in healthcare, you know, we have this term frequent flyers. So I want our listeners to kind of understand what that means. Yeah. But a frequent flyer is basically someone that you know, you know very well because they've been on in, within the system uh, many times. So how often would you say, in your opinion, just like a like a ballpark figure, how many times do you see these frequent flyers that come? Um, well, if you take a look at maybe, let's say, a three-month time span, mm -hmm. um, we can have roughly maybe five to six patients that are uh, constantly admitted um, to the unit mm -hmm. for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, there have been times where a patient has been um, inpatient, uh, you know, admitted and discharged five, six times within a month. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. In yeah. a month. In one month. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Now, with mm -hmm. that said, do you feel that the way systems are put in place, just in general, like as far as healthcare is concerned, do you feel that the systems are put in place where it promotes recovery? It certainly does promote recovery, but I think any recovery um, has to come from within the person as well. Mm -hmm. um, on a dual diagnosis ward, uh, it's easier said than done. Um, we will definitely help to detox the person, uh, depending on the substance that they come in and they were using. And then on top of that, we will work on medication-assisted therapy mm -hmm. um, to deal with the substance abuse mm -hmm. and we will also do medication 
to deal with the mental health issue as right. well mm-hmm. um because if you can't negate that part mm-hmm. and if you do um the chances the chances the chances are higher uh, for the person to go out and relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I think that if you, let's say, treat the depression mm-hmm. or treat um, the bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. get them stabilized on new medication, mm-hmm. from then on, you have to look and see if mm-hmm. you're going to be able to now motivate the person to right. maintain recovery. Right, yeah. right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, with regards to the whole recovery process with my client that I was referencing to earlier, she, what I noted was that, well, she explained to me that she was in this process before, and so she had felt that she would go in for rehab, go for like 10 days, and then automatically be released out. And in my mind, I felt that 10 days is just just about enough for someone to detox. So then what? Um, and so I was frustrated because I called her insurance to verify if that was the case and they did in fact tell me that and she did tell me like well how do they expect me to get help and you know I I, this this is not allowing me this is not enough I want more I want more and I wanted to give her more but I felt like I didn't have the resources or the best advice because here I am calling the insurance and they weren't very helpful (laughs) So what do you think about that? Like, what are your thoughts? Well, definitely um, the the 10 days is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, 30 days is not sufficient. Mm, interesting. Um, no, because recovery is something that takes months and years. Mm. Some people even decades. Mm. Um I've had clients when I did a uh, rotation at a methadone clinic that had been on methadone since the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on low doses now. Right. Um, but still, they had been on there since the 90s. Right. Um, right. So the fact that the insurance is willing to pay for the 10 days mm-hmm. um, is somewhat concerning Mm -hmm. because yeah the person wants to maintain their recovery Mm -hmm. um, and there are programs out there that will tend to be able to give that person the ability to recover post the detox post Mm -hmm. detox Mm -hmm. Um, but not a lot of insurance companies are covering it Mm -hmm. Um, one of the major reasons too is because the whole epidemic that we're going through currently in certain states, in Massachusetts included, is that uh, although it's been around for roughly 10 plus years now, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the insurance companies haven't caught up to what the reality is. Mm -hmm. Um, And on top of it, we have an even different reality right now because a lot of of the heroines and stuff that we're... um, encountering in my line of work are laced with fentanyl Mm -hmm. um and that has been a problem for roughly the past two years Mm now Mm -hmm. Uh, with that comes an added cost Mm -hmm. because it's almost like the flu strain Mm -hmm. how you were treating the flu two or three years ago is not how you're going to treat it now Mm -hmm. so it's the same thing with the whole heroin fentanyl epidemic um you know it's taking a lot longer to get out of this system um 
and they're using more because the high is just lasting for a short period of time. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so the insurance companies, of course, they can do a better job, um, but also, too, the motivating factors have to come from within. My client, uh, one of the issues I was having was just with regard to the insurance, I called them and they were like, you know, I understood the whole authorization process, which, you know, they it needed to be deemed that she was eligible to go into rehab. Right. So what I ended up doing was calling uh, the ambulance to get her into the hospital. There was a whole lot of drama with that, but basically at the end of the day, instead of them instead of the facility that she went into working on the authorization process, they just seemed as though they just gave her some IVs, got her hydrated, and released her that same day. And I was just baffled. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, then what does it take for them to start the process of even getting someone admitted to get detox? But then going back to what we were saying earlier is a lot of it does have to do with the person's mindset and the desire to want to to go through the recovery process oh yes um i mean motivation is definitely key um support system is definitely another factor that um that helps to maintain the motivation and maintain the sobriety but with this, the current state of affairs in this country um, we should also be focusing more on preventative factors as well so that um, this pattern doesn't even begin to exist in one's life. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of what I would consider kids that come into my facility um, and, you know, you just, you just wonder, like, what was the particular event that may have occurred that led to this and has continued to lead to this particular pattern mm -hmm. and the person is um at any time on the brink of dying mm -hmm. literally when you say kids what age group are you referring to i mean i'm talking about people some people i've seen are 21 mm -hmm. 22 mm -hmm. They're like um, just starting their lives, basically, as an into adulthood. Right. Into adulthood. Right, but some of them have already been using for for eight, nine years already. Wow. Yeah. That's a real thing that I feel like a lot of people don't acknowledge that or don't realize that. Right. Right. Mm. So you you tend to wonder, and and especially at that particular age group where you think that you're invincible, um, they I think are at even a higher risk because let's say they were doing, I don't know, three grams of heroin mm -hmm. uh, IV daily, mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden they feel that the three grams is not holding them anymore. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they say that they're going to go to, I don't know, six, seven grams, wow. you know, that some some people have been Narcan three times, mm -hmm. three three to four times uh, before they're able to snap back, wow. you know. Um, and some people have been Narcan and it was just 
too late. For those yeah. people that don't know, I know I only just actually found out what Narcan was. I had no idea what it was. I went to a conference where they were talking about um, for so- for social workers, and it was about substance abuse and the whole rehabilitation process. And but one of the topics that they talked about is when you find someone who has OD'd. And then they talked about this Narcan. I was like, what is this drug? And why do I need to, as a social worker, why do I need to know of it? And then I I found out what it was. But if you can just let our listeners know what that is. So, so pretty much what the Narcan is, is um, it's an antagonist. And it, it literally can reverse um, a person who has overdosed on um, mostly heroines. Mm. Um, you know, but... There is also a long-term effect to oh, really? when it comes to being Narcan so many times, mm. because not only is your your body trying to process these medications as well, and depending on how long you've been out, your brain can be starving for essential oxygen that it needs. Wow! So, you know, um, at times you can find. Um, Certain patients that come in and they'll tell you, I've been Narcan 15 times. I've been Narcan 23 times. Wow. And, you know, if you knew that person, however, so many years ago before they were addicted, you can probably more or less notice that there's a major difference in their cognitive abilities Mm. because of... Um, because of the drugs, because of the Narcan, and because of mm. the hypoxia to the brain. Wow. Mm-hmm. And to show you that, like, I don't have a medical background other than being that I've worked in the healthcare field. When I say medical background, I didn't go to school for to be an RN. I was never an LPN. I was never uh, in medical school <laughs> for any reason. So when I'm in the seminar, I was like, why do I need to know about this Narcan? And then I get it. It makes sense because I don't work with a high group of, at least as far as I know, I don't work with a high group of substance abusers, but I would see where it could be helpful for for someone who is dealing with that population on a constant basis. Because what if you do find someone and they've OD'd? And and I feel that if this particular epidemic continues it's going to be something fairly similar to cpr where you know just anybody Mm -hmm. should know cpr i think it's going to come to that point where anybody should know how to properly administer a narcan kit wow yeah that's deep that's that's really deep that really shows you just how much our society has this huge epidemic that I feel like a lot of people don't realize. It's don't. it's a big, big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Massachusetts, I think there's something going on in Ohio right now. and I've heard Maine, too. Yeah. Big population. Big, a huge heroin problem. But given the state of how things are going, um, I just think that it's it's going to happen, you know, because, um, you know, especially with, once again, this epidemic that's occurring, uh, 
and it only seems as though maybe the Narcan could start to become not as effective anymore. And the reason for that is because they're mixing more and more stuff into the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking chances at putting stuff that are not even necessarily used for human consumption mm-hmm. into the drugs. So, that? yeah, I mean, um, I believe it's um, fentanyl or another type of um, synthetic that mm-hmm. they use for like elephants or something like wow. that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and they're mixing it into the drugs. That's crazy. Yeah. It's not, it, well, I mean, clearly, it's not, obviously, it's not in its purest form, but that sounds even even worse. Like they always say, like, you never know what drugs are laced with. They could be laced with Correct. anything. Correct. Correct. And I mean, you know, the thing is, um, we see the dependence on the drugs, um, and we also see the tolerance, too. Um, so, you know, one of the things that uh, we use for um, detoxing is, um, is clonidine. Um, and it just helps to kind of reduce the anxiety and reduce all of the peripheral um, effects of the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also used to lower blood pressure as well. Um, now, of course, every practice is different. Um, every facility is different. Uh, it's a medication that is to be used only with parameters um, for blood pressure and uh, heart rate. And even the 0.1 milligram is, you know, somewhat slightly substantial. I've seen people on 0.3, you know, um, and you just worry about their their BP tanking, wow. you know. Um, and I've honestly, I've never seen it, yeah. but when you're also giving that and you're giving 200 milligrams of trazodone you're giving 6 milligrams of prazosin which is another one that um, they use it for PTSD and stuff like that but they also use it as another blood pressure lower medication Um, and then you give the person something like 100 milligrams of hydroxyzine for anxiety and they're still just hanging out wow yeah the type of stuff that probably me and you we would have it and we'd sleep for three weeks right you know but it's their tolerance their tolerance Mm -hmm. is so high Mm -hmm. and i feel that if they don't find a way to not necessarily stop the epidemic at first but to slow it down Mm -hmm. we're gonna have a point in time where we might even run out of medications that we can give them wow. that are effective to give them right you right know? right right that's so. mind-blowing that really is mind-blowing oh it certainly is it mm-hmm. certainly is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you know, you're talking to a guy that um hasn't taken a tylenol pm mm-hmm. since 2007 <laughs> because i didn't like the effect of right. It. right right right, you right. Know, right. so you could only imagine right you know right right wow and now going back to prevention because um, you were saying before about the importance of 
preventing it in these kids. What do you think, just being as a, as being a nurse in the field, what do you think are some ways like that we can prevent this? I don't, I, I, I don't know how to solve that. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, it was the Reagan era, Reaganomics, and um, Nancy Reagan started her Say No to Drugs yes, campaign. Yes, I remember. Dare. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. You know, seeing what happened to friends. This is your brain on drugs. Um, who used uh, as, as an effective way to say, oh, that's definitely never going to be for me. No. Um, to the point where, like, I was never curious mm -hmm. whatsoever mm -hmm. about it. Um, but I think in this day and age, um, I think it has to start at home. Um, and the parents have to maintain involvement in their child's lives as well um i'm not saying that at any point in time that uh, anything correlates with the the parents not being there for their child or however it is that you want to put it i'm not saying that at all but i think that the education definitely starts at home uh getting involved in the community getting involved in the schools that our children go to um is definitely something that um that we have to look at mm -hmm. um not only that um but we have to also spend enough time with our kids to notice if there is a slight change right. in their demeanor or in their behavior mm -hmm. in their attitude mm -hmm. and you know hopefully intervene sooner rather than later right you know right and what's sad, too, is that in a lot of families, it's a cycle. It's an ongoing cycle because there's been years of addiction, whether it's, you know, it could have started with the parents. Just, you know, we all make mistakes. None of us, no one is perfect. And, sure. you know, started with that. And then you see your parents being this way or behaving, engaging in these negative behaviors. And then you, you, that might come on to you and then you know it's this ongoing cycle so it's like yeah. in essence it really does truly start at home it does yeah. yeah absolutely and i mean you know i know i know how tough it is out there mm -hmm. you know um the the current state that we live in financially um you know some parents have to work two jobs some parents have to work three jobs um and it's not necessarily their fault. No. Uh, it's just what the system gave them. And in order for them to be able to provide and effectively care for their child's needs, mm -hmm. they have to sacrifice the ability to maintain an active role mm -hmm. in their child's daily lives. Right. Um, and it's unfortunate because then, you know, financially, you were just trying to provide what you needed to provide mm -hmm. now you have a whole different set of problems that you have to deal with mm -hmm. that are even more financially taxing you know because not only um do you have to deal with um 
substance abuse treatment costs. But, you know, nine times out of ten, um, a lot of times you'll find that there's a correlation between some criminal activity mm -hmm. as well when it comes to people that are using these hardcore drugs. Right. You know. And speaking of criminal activity, let's be real, and again, it's not something that I feel that is talked about. There's an epidemic in our prison systems. There's a huge epidemic in our prison systems. Yeah. yeah. They're getting it in. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. And it's, again, it's the continuation of this cycle. Right. Um, I mean, the prison system is probably going to take a whole entire different podcasts for us to <laughs> even touch on that topic right um because apparently it's supposed to be uh, the department of corrections but i really don't see what's being corrected hmm. what do you mean i don't think i understand that when i say what's being corrected mm -hmm. i feel that in the documentaries that i've seen mm -hmm. in the not so recent past mm -hmm. they're offering less and less programs mm. to um to the inmates oh okay i got you be able to stand on their own too when they get out and promote um, recovery and, and promote proper recovery mm -hmm. from the substances that they were using as well right that's yeah. true that's uh, true so i think that those programs were a godsend um and i can understand that maybe it doesn't work all the time mm -hmm. but I think that when it comes to those particular type of programs in those particular scenarios, you need to build upon them right. instead of just totally wiping them out. Right. You know, right. if something doesn't work, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get rid of it. Absolutely. You can get rid of it, but replace it with something right. else. It, or it, tweak it a it's, bit. Yeah, it's trial and error. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Well, and then you know the other thing too is with regard to the whole recovery process. You see all these commercials, like the Malibus and it looks like this beautiful place where you can go to get rehabilitated. But the truth of the matter is it's expensive. Yeah. Cliffside Malibu, our treatment program is so successful. We guarantee it. How does it, how does it differ from the 12 step? 12 step is in treatment. Okay. 12 step is a support group. 12 step basically asks what was my part in this, mm -hmm. right? And therapy, is uncovering uh, what the guys guys. So would you say that what a lot of people are paying for when they put their money down to stay at this place is the holistic aspect? It's it's not necessarily the medical aspect, but more of like the pools and the you know the bocce ball and no, that. no, it's everything. Okay. It's this. what you get. What How you can get, someone afford listen, this? $73,000. It's, it's like real. And again, going back to insurance and, you know, if, you ha if you're fortunate enough to even have health care insurance, it's so limited, the coverage. But, you know, I, I really get frustrated whenever I see those commercials for these lavish places in California where you can get rehab because the reality is someone like you and me, we can't afford it. No. No. I mean. I mean. Yeah, and and for the type of person that is, you know, abusing illegal substances or even legal substances like you know Percocets and stuff like that, um, their money is probably gonna go more towards the next high 
than to say, let me start saving for recovery. Right. You know, let's, let's be honest here. You know, um, at the end of the day, it turns into a disease when you are afraid of being sick. You know, because your body is now dependent on it mm-hmm. in order to function right. without going through terrible withdrawals. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, But from a financial standpoint, um, recovery is expensive mm-hmm. uh, and it only caters to a certain economic class, I would say. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So we're going to wrap it up, but I have one question that I feel as a new dad (laughs) is a great uh, question to ask, but what, given the state of affairs that we're in currently and just thinking along the lines of like 10, 15, 20 years from now, I mean, I can't even imagine how it's going to be if there is no change that happens. But maybe if we have more of these conversations, maybe change will happen. I hope, um, our current administration, unfortunately, is not focusing on that. Um, but again, this is why we all need to vote. We need to get out there, and it's very important. And just having that mindset to have these types of conversations as com- uncomfortable as they can be. But being that you're a new dad, what is what are some tips or some advice that you'd have for Sebastian? Let's say... I mean, I don't even know, but just in, in his future life, whatever that may be, what are some tips or advice that you have for him for the, I guess, in relation to what we're talking about? Well, you know, um, Sandrine, you've known me for um, 15 some odd years now, um, and you know how hard that I've worked um, to be very frank I will not tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my myself and my wife, how hard we're working in order to give Sebastian the type of lifestyle that our parents gave us, and even more than that. But what they gave us was the average, was the bar that we need to meet. Um I think the difference is going to be for him is that, you know, God willing, um, as long as we're able to maintain our health, um, we're going to be involved in his life as much as humanly possible without being this hovering type of parent. Mm -hmm. We're still going to let him make mistakes, but we're still going to be involved. you know, I definitely want to use whatever resources that uh, my wife and I can um, conjure up mm-hmm. to start the prevention aspect of it sooner rather than later, whether it's, you know, um, talking and even having him meet with law enforcement mm-hmm. um, to see how detrimental this type of lifestyle can be to mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, to even sitting him down and telling him about what I do mm-hmm. and the type of people that I work with. That's valid. Um, sure. You know, all in order to not necessarily a scared straight, but 
just so that he knows what that sort of lifestyle entails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And the negative consequences. Definitely, Mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, yeah, it's definitely going to be trial and error, but Mm -hmm. um, I think we have, so far, we have the right type of resources in order to, um, to give him the type of education that we want in regards to staying away from stuff like that. Right. Um, my hope is that hopefully we don't even have to have the conversation. Um, my hope is that no parents have to have that particular type of conversation. Um, because there is no parent on the face of this earth that says to themselves, if my kid becomes a heroin addict, I'll be okay with that. There's no parent, you know? Um, And I think all we can do is the best that we can do because um, this problem, especially in Massachusetts, it's not necessarily a race problem. It's not necessarily a... Um, a particular demographic problem, but it's a problem that is literally in every single community mm. out here, at least. Wow. Yeah, whether it's an affluent neighborhood right. or, or not. not. Right. Yeah. yeah. The access seems to be very easily attained. Yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised. You know, you have you have people that are heroin addicts that are functioning adults work 40 hours a week Mm -hmm. are able to maintain a certain type of lifestyle um, are able to afford a $750,000 house Mm -hmm. and then you have a heroin addict who is homeless or in a shelter Mm -hmm. or is living in low income housing which is typically what you would think a lot of people wouldn't think that someone working in the financial district could be addicted to pills right. or addicted mm-hmm. to heroin. Right, right, yeah. It's not just heroin. There's so, there's so yeah. many different drugs out there. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be tough, um, especially because not only are we dealing with illegal substances and, and, and pills, um, but, you know, the kids are even now starting to find different ways to abuse Things that you and I would have probably never thought of. The over-the-counter stuff, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, over-the-counter stuff yeah. Or, or or rubbing um, or rubbing the chapstick on their eyelids. Wait, what now, yeah, me yeah, Wait, there's, there's this thing. So there's this thing now called beezing or, 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 or beezing. And pretty much it's what they're doing is they're taking And it's taking social media by storm. In tonight's top story, News 10's Lindsay Yates went to find out what you need to know about the dangerous craze. The days of sniffing glue and inhaling cinnamon long gone. <coughs> a troublesome trend poses a new way for kids to get high, and all they need is Burt's Bees lip balm. So I don't know how much I have to like keep rubbing. News 10 sat down with Noah Coley from the Hamilton Center to learn more about the new fad. Individuals are actually taking a lip balm that has peppermint oil inside of it and rubbing it and smearing it across their eyelids. 
it. It's called Beezin. It may sound bizarre, but it's all the buzz on social media. If the right people catch on, then it could be across the world in a matter of hours. A few moments later. Oh, my eyes are watering so much. Those who have taken part in Beezin say the peppermint oil causes a burning sensation that mirrors the feeling of being drunk or high. It should sting directly into the sun. So what's actually happening is a... Uh, an allergic reaction, a skin irritation to the peppermint oil. Keep my eyes open! So it's not an actual high, but a feeling of irritation. It's kind of akin to being pepper sprayed. And Bird's Bees may be 100% natural, but that doesn't mean Beezin isn't a health risk. Your eyes is a very absorbent uh, mucous membrane kind of area. It's very sensitive. That's another entry into the bloodstream, so there's all sorts of risks of... Preventing uh, my client from getting the help that I felt that she needed. Right. You know, although you have insurance, it's may not really help you out all that much. And again, a lot of it is the person does have to be motivated. The person does have to want to do it. There has to be a a huge desire to do it. And as much as someone else can tell you, you need help, you need help. If you don't feel it from within, it's not going to mean anything. It's not. It's not. And, you know, there are other motivating factors that sometimes can fall to the wayside and you don't think that they usually would but you know some people have even though they have kids and they want to be involved in their kids life Mm -hmm. it's still not enough to motivate them in order to get straightened out you know um you know it's 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 sad especially when you see the person from a to z Mm-hmm. Um, and you're able to kind of follow the story. It's mm-hmm. it's um, it's 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 discouraging. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. Know. Um, Absolutely, it's discouraging. Yeah. Well, again, I hope that we, you know, the next several years, decades from now, whatever it takes, with the next generation, Sebastian obviously included. I hope that uh, we have more of these discussions and that we all get out there and just advocate for change. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Randy, for being here. I appreciate you for just allowing me to have this opportunity to have this discussion and this important conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciate um, the ability to um, get on the podcast and talk to you guys and share some of the knowledge that I have. knowledge and expertise was very insightful I thought it was really good to hear from his perspective from a treatment standpoint because he's on the opposite end where he's receiving these individuals that are in need of treatment and also the fact that we're able to tie in fatherhood and his role as a new dad and he really was just honest and gave his genuine opinion with regard to how we can facilitate more of these types of conversations which can hopefully lead to prevention. What are your thoughts? Do you have some suggestions? I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about the Misguided Notions podcast.